0: I think that combining art and science is very interesting and very appealing to minorities in science. Science can apply to your every day and how it can be fun, right? How it can be very exciting and so on.
1: Today, we're joined by Dr. Alvin Boyabell, an assistant professor in the electrical engineering and computer science department at LaSonde. We delve into her insights on system assurance and hear about her passion for poetry and how creativity can be found at the intersection of art and science. Hi Alvine. welcome to the podcast. It's so great having you here. Nice to meet you too. To start off the episode, could you share a bit about
0: your background and how you got into computer science? Yes, sure. So I hold a PhD in uh, software engineering and I completed PhD at uh, Ecole de Technologies Superieure, which is uh, an engineering school that is located in Montreal. And after completing my uh, PhD degree, I uh, went to the University of Ottawa, where uh, I completed a two-year industrial postdoc in uh, software engineering. And I uh, decided to study uh, computer science because it is a very passionate domain, a very passionate program, and it embeds a lot of mathematical uh, stuffs, if I can talk that way. Because when I was uh, in the equivalent of high school here, I was very fond in mathematics, physics, and chemistry. So for me. Um, Completing a bachelor's degree a, 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 and even graduate studies uh, that relates to mathematics was very interesting. So this is the reason why I ended up in computer science, because a part of the, the subjects that I studied in the computer science program were related to mathematics. And how do these experiences shape your research interests? So I have plenty of research of interest, and some of them include combinatorial optimization, which also relates to mathematics. And part of my research interest also relates to system assurance. So system assurance is a means to demonstrate that a given system supports some properties. These properties can be safety, they can be security, reliability, and so on. Very nice, Well, talking
1: about research, as the head of a D.A.R.E. research group, which for the viewers who don't know, that stands for the Dynamic Assurance of Autonomous Driving Systems, could you provide an overview
0: and explanation of Dare's purpose and objectives? For now, the type of systems on which I want to focus autonomous driving systems. And I chose to focus on these on these systems because I think that they are part of the future. So maybe in the next five years or even 10 years, several of us will enjoy or will want to enjoy the safe autonomy by using autonomous driving cars, right? But to make sure that the, the technology behind the development Of autonomous driving cars is properly safe. We need to develop means to support dynamic assurance and this is what I'm trying to do in my lab. And in my lab so currently my students they are investigating the different concepts that relate to system assurance in general and at some point they will converge to static assurance first and then to uh, dynamic assurance. Uh, The static assurance is uh, the assurance that we need to provide before a system is used, before a system is uh, deployed. So, for instance, if we need to use a new pilot system in a given plane, for instance, right? Or if we need to use a new autonomous uh, driving system in a new car, we need to demonstrate that system is sufficiently safe, secure, reliable, and uh, so on before it is used. Because if we do not uh, demonstrate that uh, the safety is sufficient in such systems that they are reliable enough, that they are uh, secure enough, these systems may fail, right? And when such systems fail, it means that they can crash, they can uh, lead to injuries. People can die, or even the cars or even the planes, they can crash in a given house, right, uh, leading to property uh, destruction. Or they can lead to financial loss. You, you heard about the Titan submersible recently that imploded, because safety was not properly supported in such systems, right? So safety was not properly ensured or assured, if you prefer. So before we started using such systems, we need to demonstrate that they will be safe for people, right, they will be secure, they will be reliable. And in my case, I mainly focus on safety uh, for now. So this is one aspect of system assurance, so the static assurance that should be demonstrated before a system is used.
1: Well, thank you so much for elaborating on that. That makes a lot of sense. So your previous research focused on topics such as software maintenance and evolution. What motivated you to explore these specific
0: areas? So what motivated me to explore software maintenance and evolution, right? So what motivated me to explore such topics is the fact that several systems, several banking systems, for instance, were decades ago, right, maybe 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, and so on. So sometimes the, the technologies that are used by banking systems, for instance, and uh, other type of organizations, like uh, flight organizations, for instance, they can be very obsolete, right, because the technologies that have been used to to create such systems can date back to the 60s or the 80s and so on right? So the technologies need to be replaced. And uh, if we have difficulties to modernize such such systems. It means that we also have difficulties to add new functionalities to such uh, systems to make sure that uh, the new functionalities of such systems adapt to the needs of the users. So this is the reason why I was mainly interested into that. And the other reason that I was also very interested into that is the fact that uh, developers or people who have the expertise in legacy systems, in systems that have been created a while ago, have sometimes left the organization uh, developing these uh, systems or even have retired, right? And new graduate students, they are not familiar with um, the older technologies, right? They want to use uh, brand new uh, technologies, right? So, companies, organizations that have developed legacy systems, they usually fail to find people who have the expertise in obsolete systems and that will help them modernize their systems. And uh, even if they find uh, such people, right, the modernization can be very time consuming, right, because these systems are usually large, right, they can consist of millions of lines of code, right, so modernizing them can be very time consuming, it can be very expensive. So I was interested in developing technologies that will make sure that the modernization of legacy systems become easier, become more flexible, become less cost-effective and become automatic. It is a bit like having a very large building, right? That we want to modernize, right? But the building has been created a while ago. If we don't have the architecture of the building, it is difficult to to say, okay, maybe we will destroy this part of the building or even of of the subway. Maybe the subway structure is more um, appropriate. So the subway structure can be very long, very large, right? In order to modernize, for instance, the subway structure we need to have the architecture of the subway and because it will help us reason on how to modernize the, the subway, right? But the issue with having that that architecture at the first place is that architecture has evolved, right? Over the time, we maybe we have added different stations to uh, the subway, maybe we have closed some stations, right? And maybe these changes have not been reflected on the actual architecture of a given subway structure. So my work was a bit similar to that, right? try to make sure that you recreate an architecture that reflects all the changes that have been done on uh, a given system over the time, in order to make sure that we have a high-level view of uh, a given system that reflects its actual structure. And once we have that high-level structure, once we have the current architecture of of a system, we can reason on how to evolve it.
1: And what were some key findings from the research that you conducted?
0: So, some of the key findings of my research was the fact that when we are trying to reconstruct the the architecture of a given system, right, we can rely on different properties, on different relationships between the elements that constitute the architecture of the system, right? We can rely on structural relationships and on syntactic relationships, right?
1: So, now that we talked about different kinds of information and systems that you've been analyzing, what about trends? Are there any emerging trends or technologies in software engineering and system assurance that you find particularly exciting or promising,
0: so, um, you have to know that software engineering in general is a very passionate field. It is evolving a lot. So, yes, a lot of new trends that we can focus on. So, there is the IoT, Internet of Things, that is really trending. There is also the use of web technologies, right? Um, like React.js or Google Firebase, that's becoming very popular. So, most of the undergraduate students, for instance, that I'm currently supervising, they are interested in uh, developing uh, web applications. So they use search technologies like React.js, Google Firebase, and uh, Google Cloud, for instance, in order to make sure that they create applications that are accessible online, right? And when it comes to system assurance, it's important to notice that system assurance is interdisciplinary because usually we are building systems in almost every domain, right? In the automotive domain, in the railway domain, in healthcare, in the maritime uh, domain, in aerospace, and so on, right? So if I have to to pick one of the most uh, important or interesting trends on system assurance, I will say autonomous driving systems, right? So there are several companies like uh, General Motors, like uh, Waymo, for instance, that are trying to make sure that they they create autonomous driving cars that are used by a lot of people and especially uh, people who have uh, maybe uh, a reduced accessibility and so on, right? And I've seen that in the U.S., for instance, some of the autonomous driving cars have started to be used. So it is very intriguing. It's very fascinating. I think the use of autonomous uh, driving cars will uh, be a revolution to our society. It will change the the way we perceive the autonomous domain. And it also comes with a lot of challenges, right? If we decide to use a given system to drive a car instead of having a human person as uh, the driver, it also comes um, with the challenge of being sure that the autonomous driving system that is used by an autonomous car, makes decisions that are similar to the ones that are made by humans, right? So he's able to properly identify pedestrians, for instance. is able to properly stop at an intersection by recognizing that, oh, the, the light is red, I have to stop here, right? Right. And usually to be able to create that type of systems, we can use machine learning techniques, right? And machine learning is also very trending. So I think that the combination of software engineering, machine learning applied to the automotive domain is one of the trends that I will see in my field in the next few years. And this is the reason I'm also working on it.
1: So I know that Teslas are autonomous. They have this autonomous feature in them. Do you think it's the start of a revolution? Because I think it's also become really trending to, you know, get those cars and show off the autonomy feature of it because I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's one of the only cars right now that have an autonomy feature on it.
0: So, I know that Tesla is trying to be one of the leaders in autonomous driving cars, right? But I'm aware that General Motors also has a division in the U.S. that is called Cruise, and that is also proposing autonomous cars. But when we're talking about autonomous cars or even autonomy in general, there are levels of autonomies, right? So we can have a full autonomy where... There is no one who is driving apart from the autonomous driving systems that is uh, installed in a given car and that will try to reproduce or that will try to drive as humans do. And we can also have maybe a lower level of autonomy where there are some driving situations that are automatically made by an autonomous uh, driving system, but we have to make sure that there is still a driver that is installed in the car and that is also making sure that there are some driving solutions. Even if there are some driving decisions that should be made and that are not properly made by the autonomous driving system, that human driver will be able to take the wheel and uh, make sure that the car properly drives, right? Avoid pedestrians and uh, do not cause safety incidents, for instance. Right, So there are different levels of autonomies, and I know that there are several companies that are trying to be the next leaders in uh, autonomous driving cars. There is also Waymo that is also involved in that race for uh, the development of very efficient, accurate, and so on, autonomous uh, driving cars. Yeah.
1: So when it comes to the levels that you were just mentioned earlier, with your type of research, would you want to achieve the higher levels or the lower levels where sometimes a driver is needed?
0: So currently in my research, I will start with in the lab, right? So with experiments in the lab, we will have maybe a tinier course. So we are still analyzing the the driving situations, but not in the real situations, right? So for now, we will try to target different levels of uh, autonomy and see maybe which level we have reached with the solutions that we have achieved so far. But ultimately, I hope that uh, I will have the possibility to conduct uh, applied research in companies like General Motors to test my solutions on real cars that are developed by such companies and adapt to the level of autonomy that these companies currently uh, support.
1: Very nice. I can't wait to see where your research goes. So now switching gears to another one of your passions, I must say your love for both engineering and poetry is quite intriguing. It's fascinating how creativity plays a significant role in both fields. So speaking of poetry, you've won several national and international contests, which is very impressive. I'm really curious to know, where did your passion for poetry come from?
0: Um, my mom is teaching French poetry and she's teaching linguistics. Uh, in French. So, she always had a lot of books at home, right? Grammar books, dictionaries, and books about fictions, and also poetry books. So, I grew up with all these books, and I was used to talk to her, right? And she had that passion when she was talking about existing novels and about literature in general. So, I grew up with that passion. And when I turned 13, at school, we started to study traditional poetry, right? Where the writing is very... Let's say mathematical, because we are using some, what we call, um, we are counting the syllables, right? So if we want to write uh, traditional poetry, we have to count the syllables and make sure that the poems that we write comply with a given number of uh, syllables, right? So this was traditional poetry, and I think the way that it was constraining regarding how the test should be structured did not necessarily allow the freedom to create or to say everything that we needed to say, right? And um, a few months after learning traditional poetry, I also learned free poetry, right? I discovered a lot of poets who used to write poetry as if they were writing novels, right? And their poetry was more powerful, more intriguing, more passionate, because they didn't have to comply with the content that traditional poetry had, right? They had the freedom to say what they wanted to say and how and uh, the way they wanted to say it right and i just became very uh fascinating and i when i turned 14 i started to write poetry and it was usually a bit random maybe during the the vacation or something like that but i didn't know that it will allow me to win uh, a few prizes right so the first prize that i earned in poetry was a poem that is called jardin de la vie so it is a bit if I have to translate in English, a, I can call it the garden of life or something like that, right? So it's a poem that is reimagines the way people Are born, right? So when parents are telling the stories to their children to let them know how they were born, they are making a lot of stories, right? They are very popular stories and so on. So I also created my own story and saying, oh, we are all born from a given garden, right? Because there are trees that grow ears, and there are trees that grow eyes, and there are trees that grow hair and so on. And every morning there is a gardener who comes and collects every part every fruit of uh, histories, put them in packages, and send them to parents. And these are all how babies are born, right? And uh, people found that poem very cute, right? And uh, I've been encouraged to participate to poetry competitions. And I arrived at the second place, and I got published just like this.
1: Congratulations about that. Thank you. So where has your creativity from poetry helped you in your software engineering journey, tying the two together now?
0: So, okay, when I'm writing a poetry, it is a bit relying on my emotions, right? The way I feel, the way I perceive things, right? And when I'm conducting my research activities, when I'm teaching, for instance, I'm more relating on my, uh, let's say, logical, logical part, less feelings, less subjectivity, more objectivity, right? But in order to make sure that the technologies I am creating may be more evolved, more creative, and so on, it's certain that I have to draw to the kind of creativity that I use uh, in my poem to make sure that the technologies that I am developing create something that is spectacular, that is revolutionary, that is nice, that is also interesting. Because in order even to recruit students, they have to know that I am working on something that is creative, that something that may change the future, right? so this is how I'm using my creativity to make sure that uh, I create something that is appealing to, to people, to my future students, to the, the society, and the so on.
1: So on that note, how do you think combining art and science can help communicate complex scientific concepts to a wider audience, especially those underrepresented in STEM?
0: I think that combining art and science is very interesting and maybe very appealing to minorities in science because sometimes when people think about science, they may assume that it is maybe just something that is just objective, that is very close, right? That is just for an elite or something like that. They may think that, oh, it is just about maybe mathematics or physics. They are things that are complex, uh, that are for geeks. And uh, they don't maybe necessarily see how science can apply to your everyday and how it can be fun, right? How it can be very exciting and so on. And certain that if we create scientific projects that appeal to the artistic side of uh, people in general or even um, of uh, minorities, they will be more interested. They would be more engaged in completing maybe a research project, so on enrolling in a graduate program to conduct some research that will constitute a technological advancement, but that will also have that creativity side we mainly find in art, for instance, right? So we have to make sure that the way we create new technologies blends creativity and functionalities. So
1: speaking of creativity and you know unleashing that side of students, As a poet, how do you use your creativity and innovation when teaching them in the classroom?
0: So I try to make sure that the projects that I propose to students have a creativity side. So, for instance, I can make sure that some parts of the project that I am proposing are open-ended. So, I don't tell my students that, uh, okay, these are the solutions or these are the technologies uh, that you should uh, use, for instance, to develop your project, your new system, and so on, right? I'm sometimes asking them, okay, this is a subset of the technology that you can use, right? But try to find additional ones, right? To maybe create a new functionality that I haven't discussed in class yet, but so that you think very appealing and quite creative and so on. So they go, they try to make some search on other technologies that we haven't covered in class. And they try to also be creative about the new functionalities that we don't have in uh, systems that we have maybe discussed in class, but that may be interesting. And we have a discussion about your search, about how they are seeing things differently, how they are thinking that uh, they may make existing systems or the system that they will create more appealing to users. For instance, when we are developing web technologies or e-commerce systems, are systems that can be used online to purchase items like clothes, groceries and so on. So all these uh, systems, they usually have a common set of features, right? They allow purchasing things online. They allow registering to to have an account and have the possibility to, to pay online. They allow searching for some items online, ordering some items, filtering some items and so on. But there are some uh, functionalities that may be uh, used to extend these uh, e-commerce systems, right? So this year, for instance, I asked my students to try to develop a chatbot that that will allow interacting with uh, users, right? like if they were humans, and I, and I told them, okay, be creative and try to create a chatbot that, that will be very human-like. So I told them, these are a set of uh, technologies that can be used to create chatbots, but you have the freedom to go online, search additional technologies, and make sure that you create your chatbots in a very creative manner. And I also told them about the virtual try-on feature, I don't know if, if you have already tried that. So the virtual try-on feature is a feature that allows you to virtually try a given item. So if, for instance, you want to purchase um, glasses online, maybe you want to try the glasses before you you purchase them, right? So, some e-commerce sites that will uh, take a picture of you oh, or that will yes, allow. Yes, I heard of that. Okay. So there are some uh, websites that will allow you to maybe upload your picture and that will put the glasses you have selected on your picture and will allow you to see yourself wearing these glasses, right? So it's very interesting. So I introduced that type of feature to my students and I told them, okay, these are the set of technologies that can be used to create that kind of feature, Try to reproduce that feature, and maybe use other technologies that you find maybe more appealing, more interesting to implement that kind of feature. And they were very creative. They uh, they found even ways that I haven't talked of to create that kind of that kind of feature. And it appealed to your creativity, and it was very fantastic.
1: So you keep your projects that you assign to students as a very like subjective and unique experience to each individual student. It's a good strategy. So. Alvin, as we are nearing the end, I must ask, as an assistant professor, you mentored and guided aspiring computer scientists. What advice do you have for those starting their academic journey or considering a career in the field? Um...
0: First, they need to work hard, work consistently. Um, They need to be curious. They don't need to limit themselves to what they already know, right? They need to have that drive to be open, open open-minded, and try to see how they can increase their knowledge in the field of research and even in connect skills. And they have to know that failure happens because some of the students who want to conduct research, sometimes they are strict A students and they assume that it will always be that way. But in research... Failure is part of the process, right? Sometimes we f- we have a problem and we think that we have found a solution, but when we run our experiments, we realize that the solution is not that effective, it's not that performance, and so on. So, they need to know that failure is part of the process, and it is by and it is sometimes by failure that we realize that maybe even what exists is not um, properly geared toward the resolution of some problems, right? So they need to be tolerant to failure and make sure that uh, they are able to properly get past these failures and improve your knowledge and become better researchers, right? Because we have a say in research that is the following. We have to rinse and repeat, right? If you fail, you just have to identify why you have failed and to improve your work so that you do no longer fail the next time, right? And they have to be resilient. They, they always have to be creative, and they don't have to think that everything has already been done, right? Oh, they don't have to say to to think that they are very popular researchers in the field who are well established and who have already done all the works, and that they, as uh, students, right, as future uh, graduate students. There is nothing that they can do, right? They don't have to be afraid to, to be creative and to even criticize what others have already done. Even if others are well-established researchers, there is always a room for improvement. So they have to be bold, bold, but also humble.
1: Well, that's all we have for you today. Thank you for the insightful conversations and for joining us on today's episode.
0: And thank you for inviting me to be part of that episode.
1: Poetry and engineering, what a combination. Dr. Bell's journey is a testament to the power of dedication and interdisciplinary thinking. Thanks for listening. This is Lassonde.